Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get on to this week's podcast, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who came to my live show with Julia Hartley Brewer last night. It was a riot. If you missed it, don't worry, you'll get to hear our conversation in next week's episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show. But if you want to make sure you're at our next live event, the best way to do that is by becoming a Spiked supporter. Spiked supporters will always get early access to tickets and they will always get a discount. There are plenty of other perks that come with being a Spiked supporter too. Plus, you get to help Spiked. It is thanks to our supporters that Spiked is able to keep going and growing. So to find out more about becoming a Spike supporter, go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Now onto this week's episode with Wendy Kamener. I find it really hard and increasingly rare to have conversations with people who disagree with me. Mm. There are so many topics that are now off limits. And if your ideas are not challenged, you're not going to learn very much. It's not just that you're not going to learn new perspectives or new ideas. It's that you're not going to develop your own thinking skills. You're going to become stupider, you know, to put it very simply. (laughs) You're, You're making yourself stupid because you are depriving yourself of the opportunity to learn how to think. Yeah. Because argument is a form of thinking. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Wendy Kamener. Wendy is an American writer, lawyer and columnist for Spiked. She is a staunch defender of freedom of speech and has been involved in numerous fights for freedom over the past four decades. Wendy is a former national board member of the American Civil Liberties Union. She became critical of the ACLU leadership for its turn against freedom of speech, a controversy she later wrote about in her book, Worst Instincts, Cowardice, Conformity and the ACLU. Wendy is a seasoned social critic and has written many books, including I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional, The Recovery Movement and Other Self-Help Fashions, Free for All, Defending Liberty in America Today, and Fearful Freedom, Women's Flight from Equality. So, Wendy, the first thing I want to ask you about is, it's a very sweeping question, I want to ask you about the state of freedom of speech and the state of the fight for freedom of speech, because it seems quite complex. On the one hand, there is a pushback against cancel culture, of which you are a part, and you have obviously been writing about freedom of speech and the problem of censorship for a very long time. And there's a healthy resistance growing in terms of pushing back against cancel culture and the new authoritarianism and the new intolerance. But at the same time, those trends are also spinning, in my view, they're spinning more and more out of control. And it seems in the UK, and I'm presuming in the US as well, the instinct for cancellation, the instinct for erasing anyone who has problematic or, or difficult views is, is still very pronounced. So on balance, how do you see the struggle for freedom of speech going at the moment? I think we are in great danger of losing the struggle for free speech because we are in danger of losing the rising generations, especially on the left, but not simply on the left. And I think it's important to remember that free speech advocates, genuine free speech advocates who want to protect the, the, the speech of people whose views they really abhor or even fear, those of us who believe that are always going to be in a small minority, whether we're on the right or the left. I think that the... Um, instinct, the desire to somehow restrict the people you regard as your political enemies comes naturally to most people, regardless of their political affiliations. But what we're seeing now is 
a decline of liberalism, and I don't mean a decline of left-wing democratic politics. I mean a decline in what I think of as classical liberal thinking, a decline in um, a belief in the importance of neutral lawmaking and neutral application of the law. Mm. Progressives tend not to believe in that when it comes to matters of free speech. Uh, they think that they can define whatever constitutes a, whatever constitutes dangerous hate speech, speech that they, that they, I think, nonsensically equate with violence. And, you know, on the right, some of those instincts are just as strong. But on the right, we're also seeing, um, especially on the hard right, and, and I don't call them conservatives because they're not in any way conservatives, mm. these hard right Trumpist extremists. We see a belief in striving for power regardless of fairness, that, you know, we're the good guys and they're the bad guys and it's important for society for us to be in power. And, and essentially progressives are taking the same tack in their approach to free speech. We're the good guys. We know yep. what good speech is. Um, we should be able to define and restrict or punish bad speech. So I think on both sides of the political spectrum, all sides of the political spectrum, we're seeing, um, as I've said, a, a decline in a belief in a, in a fair, content-neutral legal system. You know, a fair, nonpartisan system of laws. And, and that's one reason why democracy is in so much trouble. Mm-hmm. It's in, in a way, you can say it's in trouble from the left because of the hostility. It's real active hostility toward free speech because free speech is a central tenet of democracy. On the, on the right, it's even worse because it's taking the form of um, efforts to demolish the very structures of democracy, voting rights, and a, a, a fair and transparent system of counting votes. So, uh, you know, I don't think, as much as I um, oppose um, a lot of woke ideology, if you can even call it ideology, it's in many ways it's more like power play, which is also what you see on the right. As much as I oppose that, I don't think there's any real moral equivalency between what's happening on the left and what's happening on the right. Because the left has cultural power. It has growing cultural power. Um, and in some ways, it, it, the, the rising generation of progressives have the kind of cultural power that my generation of boomers had in the 60s and 70s. But really, how did that turn out? Yeah. <laughs> Think about it. The, the cultural yeah. power doesn't necessarily, you know, it, it, it gives you something, it, um, and it certainly can affect the way people think. But, you know, we ended up with two terms of Ronald Reagan in, in the 1980s, who at that time was considered, uh, you know, a very conservative president. Today he'd be a moderate. <laughs> and young progressives have that kind of cultural power. They're driving a lot of conversations they were the ones who really started to drive cancel culture, though now you see it erupting on the right as well. But the right holds political power, and they are consolidating it, and they are consolidating minority political power, which is most dangerous. I want to come back specifically to that question of cultural power versus political power, because we have a similar dynamic in the UK. The the left has a huge amount of cultural influence in the academy, in popular culture, in the media, but the right, of course, is in power. And there is a tension between who's really in charge, who is driving the themes of the nation, the ideology of the nation. So I want to come back to that specifically. But before we do that, or maybe as part of doing that, I want to ask you about some of the origins of what we currently call cancel culture? Because I think to lots of people who read about cancel culture, they might think this is a new phenomenon. People have only been talking about it for the past three or four years with that particular title. But of course, it's been around for a long time and in different ways, you know, on campuses and in workplaces and the rise of speech codes and the rise of politically correct thinking. And there's one thing I wanted to ask you in particular, because you've been at the forefront of lots of these discussions in the US for a long time. 
And the one thing I've always thought about the 1990s in particular, when people like you and others were making the case against campus censorship, against the excesses of political correctness, against the intrusion of speech codes and behavior codes into interpersonal relations and so on, all those things that were happening in the 1990s, which even though it might distress us to remind ourselves, is a quite a long time ago. And it often, it often seems to me that people like you won the argument but lost the war. And I don't mean that as an insulting thing. I mean, I, when I watched people like you or read people like you in the 1990s when I was young, I remember thinking they've won the argument so straightforwardly, uh, it's so clear. But over time, the war, in terms of the gains of the war and the victories, seem to have gone to those who are on the more aggressive side, the more censorious side, the more restrictive side. So how do you, do you think that's a fair summary of what happened? And if, and if it is, how do you think that happened? Why, what do you think went wrong there? Well, actually, I think we lost the argument. <laughs> I'm glad that you think we went with Brendan, but that's because you agreed with us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think if we had won the argument, um, we would have gone a long way toward winning the war. Right. There were a lot of factors that fed into the rise of campus censorship in the 90s, which has become an increasingly extreme over the mm. last, you know, as you say, we don't like to think of what a long time ago it was, but it's really 30 years ago. My friend Harvey Silverglade, who I, who I think you know, Harvey was one of the founders of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, will trace this intolerance for free speech on the left to um, Herbert Marcuse's theories of repressive tolerance. And, and I think you can go back that far if you want to. I think there's some merit in that. But I trace it back to, you know, I see it most clearly coming to the fore in the 1980s, when you had a convergence, and, and, I, and I've written about this a little bit, maybe for Spike, I, I don't really remember. You had a convergence of the feminist anti-porn movement, which was, you know, all about defining and restricting what a certain group of feminists regarded as dangerous speech or speech that they considered the equivalent of a sexual assault. Mm. You had that converging with the recovery movement, the 12-step movement, which I also wrote a lot about, which is popularized this notion that, to put very simply, but this is what they believed and promoted, getting yelled at by your parents was really just as bad as getting physically assaulted, molested by your parents. Mm. Words wound, you know, I think that was the name of one of, title of one of Catherine McKinnon's books. So you had these two fairly uh, powerful social, cultural movements, especially the the 12-step movement, the recovery movement in the 1980s was very, very popular and influential. And you had that converging with the anti-porn movement. So you had these two movements that are promoting the idea that you can't really distinguish between words and actions and that speech we don't like, whoever the we is, is um, the equivalent of very destructive or violent actions. And then in the 1990s, you have a drive by colleges and universities to diversify, to, you know, to have um, better racial, ethnic, even gender diversity. And all of that was a good thing, but they really didn't know how to deal with it. And they decided that, you know, people who were coming in from racial or ethnic minorities had to be protected from speech they didn't like, Mm. you know, in order for them to prosper, in order for the campuses to become friendly, cooperative places. And they had that drive or desire buttressed by this growing belief in the violence of the word. You know, this growing belief that language could be just as destructive as physical violence. And in fact, language was physical violence. I mean, that's what they keep coming back to. So, you know, all of that coalesces in the 1990s and it becomes more and more extreme, you know, so that we're at the point today where it's considered a microaggression or some kind of an assault, not to use an epithet, you know, not to um, uh, explicitly demean somebody on the basis of race or sex or gender or religion or whatever, 
but simply to express an idea that they oppose. Yeah. And that becomes a microaggression. You know, that becomes something that we should restrict. If you are in favor of affirmative action, you shouldn't be expressing those ideas. There are words that you can't say that you can only reference by their initials, which I think is incredibly childish. Yeah. You know, and I've said this before. I'm a writer. I believe in the power of words, but I don't think they cast spells. You know, yeah. I, when you get to the point where you think just the sound of a word the sound of a couple of syllables together, regardless of meaning or context, is traumatic, is the equivalent of a violent assault, then, you know, we've gone so beyond the realm of reason that I, I don't know how to respond to it. <laughs> I think that's a, a very good description of, of how we got to where we're at. And as you say, it's become more extreme over time. So, uh, you know, you've gone from the words wound idea, which was a very strong idea in the 80s and 90s among certain writers and thinkers, through to the one of the most commonly used words in the woke lexicon today is the word erasure. So if you express a particular idea, you're not only potentially offending someone, but you are erasing them, you're erasing their identity. And we hear that particularly in relation to um, the transgender idea, for example, there's a huge civil war in feminism in the UK at the moment, where some feminists uh, question aspects of transgenderism and trans activists accuse them of erasing trans people, killing off trans people. This is a genocide, you know, this extreme language used to describe what is essentially just criticism. But it, in relation to what you've just described, and you mentioned there the word diversity. So I wanted to ask you about the ways in which freedom of speech has been quite self-consciously juxtaposed against apparently superior values like diversity, like social justice. And what's happened over time, I think, from the 1980s onwards is that among some progressives, among many progressives, freedom of speech has come to be seen as, as less important or inferior or a barrier to the realisation of social justice, the realisation of the ideal of diversity. How problematic do you think that is where you have this self-conscious crashing together of supposedly progressive values where freedom of speech always seems to be the loser? Freedom of speech is not a progressive value. You have to begin with that premise. Um, and that's why I, I talk about uh, not just progressive disregard for free speech, but I think there is active progressive hostility to free speech mm. because you're right. Um, the way free speech debates are framed now is that free speech is a barrier to equality. Free speech is a barrier to social justice. Free speech is an instrument by which the powerful seek to, you know, make sure that the marginalized retain, remain on the margins. That's a, a very strong view. Um, and that's been true for a while. Now, I, you know, it, it, at the ACLU, for example, and I've written about this a lot, the ACLU for decades has had um, both a civil rights and a civil liberties agenda. You know, the civil liberties agenda obviously geared towards free speech, free exercise of religion, civil rights agenda geared toward equality, uh, the enforcement of civil rights, anti-discrimination laws. And for decades, that worked really well. But um, there is always there was always a natural tension between the two, and I think in some ways it can be a healthy tension that can lead to some healthy debates. And you see it clearly in things like sexual harassment in the workplace. If you have a very very sexist workplace in which women are being frequently bombarded with with sexist language, um, imagery, with, you know, what even you and I might consider real verbal harassment mm. that affects their ability to do their job. Um, and if you want to promulgate rules to deal with that, you're going to have to deal with the conflict between the free speech rights of the people you regard as the harassers and the people who just want to come to be able to come to work and do their job, mm. right? Mm. So, you know, something is going to give in in those cases. And um, reasonable people are going to disagree about how far the regulation should go, how, you know, what's more important here, what trumps here, the free speech rights or the right to be free of harassment in the workplace. And you can have interesting and productive debates about that. But we're now at a place where um, we're not just talking about 
sort of interesting conflicts between equality rights and speech rights in hard cases, but a categorical rejection of free speech as an across-the-board bar to equality. And so you see, that's why, as I've written about it in, in Spike and other places, you see the ACLU retreating from a defense of free speech almost across the board to an embrace of equality and racial justice and a lot of other progressive causes. We've all been there. We've all tried to start getting healthier before slipping back into the old habits. But we all know that if you try to change your habits without changing your mindset, the results just don't last. That's where Noom comes in. Instead of forcing you to make radical changes or getting you to follow impossibly strict rules, Noom helps you understand your mind and body to get the best long-term results. You only need to spend 10 minutes a day on Noom to feel the difference. It's taught me that it's okay to have off days and there's no such thing as bad food. The Noom app gives you access to loads of different recipes for inspiration and it also makes it easy and fun to log what food you've eaten and to see your progress. It's weight loss without all the stress. Most important of all, Noom tailors its programs to your needs, your goals and your lifestyle. And when you need that extra motivation, their coaching team is on hand for advice and support. Why not sign up for your trial of Noom today? Don't take it from me. More than 80% of Noom users finish their personalized program and more than 60% end up sticking to their goals for more than a year. So lose weight for good. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash Brendan. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash Brendan. That leads me on very nicely to the question I wanted to ask you about the ACLU and I find what's happened to the ACLU really depressing, if I'm being honest, because in the UK, we've never had an organization like the ACLU. We've never had an organization which historically, at least, had a very strong line on freedom of speech, on the right of people to express unpopular, shocking, disturbing opinions. You know, we have groups here, we have civil libertarian groups, but they've often been very weak on the freedom of speech question. They've been stronger on the issue of legal rights and so on. So I've always... Uh, for a long time, I admired the ACLU, but they, there has unquestionably been a downward spiral. You have uh, reported on that downward spiral better than anyone else because you were a key figure in the ACLU. You fell out with the ACLU and you have described very well their abandonment of some of their core values, especially in relation to freedom of speech and their adoption of these new progressive ideas, the idea of balancing speech against things that are more important. And I find it very concerning. And one issue in particular that I wanted to raise with you about the ACLU's decline, I guess, is in relation to their embrace of the idea that speech can cause serious harm to marginalized communities. So the free, so the ACLU has become very cagey, for example, about defending the right, the free speech rights of white supremacists, of the kind of people who marched in Charlottesville, who we all agree were unpleasant people. That's a nice word for them, Brendan. <laughs> they were despicable. Despicable people, unquestionable. It seems highly, highly unlikely that the ACLU would take on a case like Skokie, for example, the famous Skokie case, even well known in Europe, where they defended the right of neo-Nazis to march through a town which had a, you know, pretty high Jewish population. So I want you to just say, say a bit more about why you think that happened to the ACLU and why this idea that free speech harms marginalized communities. That to me is the most shocking idea for a civil libertarian to embrace because it undercuts not simply freedom of speech, but a belief in the moral equality between different communities and the capacity of communities to understand the world around them and to stand up for themselves. And, and it also ignores the importance of free speech to marginalized communities and how essential free speech has been to every single liberation movement, certainly in the U.S. What happened to the ACLU, um, it's a long, somewhat complicated story. I've written a book about part of it, and that was, God, that was 15, that was 15 years ago. There's one short, simple answer to what happened to the ACLU, and that is personnel as policy. I mean, we were discussing how uh, progressives have abandoned 
free speech, have, have become hostile to free speech. The ACLU, well, going back a few decades, it, um, you'd find some Republicans on some of the ACLU boards, but that was also at a time when the Republican Party was much more sane and had actual moderate civil libertarian elements in it. But it has always been um, fairly identified as a liberal organization, a yeah. left of center organization. So that's where its primary constituency is. Liberals, you know, left of center liberals like me, we're an aging minority. The people coming up, people in their 20s, 30s, even 40s, who are on the left don't identify as liberal anymore and don't hold the same kind of ideals that liberal civil libertarians did. They're progressives. And they're the people who are coming onto boards. They're the people who are coming into staff positions. And to some extent, I don't, you know, I don't know exactly how, what the membership profile of the ACLU looks like right now, but I think it's safe to assume that to some extent, those are the people who are joining and financially supporting the ACLU. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's in part the ACLU responding both to its membership and its staff in changing its approach to free speech and becoming a essentially a progressive advocacy group. Now, you know, as you may know, I also blame a great deal of this on the ACLU leadership, going back to the um, appointment of Anthony Romero, who has been executive director of the ACLU since 2001, who, in my opinion, is someone who is not a natural free speech advocate. Mm. You know, someone who in my time there when, you know, we were, I think it's fair to say we were stirring up some opposition to him. And we were certainly, there were a few of us who were voicing very strong opposition to some of what he was doing, having to do with violations of ACLU policy, also having to do with just ethical violations. His response to that and the response of the leadership of the board, the executive committee, including Nadine Strassen, was to shut down dissent within the ACLU. Yeah. So, you know, you had an ACLU leadership that um, itself clearly did not have a consistent principled commitment to free speech. So you combine that with, I think, the natural um, evolution or devolution of the progressive movement and its hostility to free speech, and you get to where we are today. There's a broader question that has always niggled in my mind in relation to not just the ACLU. This kind of takes us onto a broader issue in relation to the United States and civil libertarianism in the United States, which is that one of the issues with the ACLU in relation to cancel culture is one of the reasons I think the ACLU, and you've written about this, one of the reasons they can dodge the issue of cancel culture and push it to one side and say, well, it's not really for us is because of course, cancel culture is not led by the state. This is not a, this is not a state encroachment on the, on the individual. So therefore it is not strictly speaking, it is not unconstitutional. It doesn't go against the first amendment. And if you're a first amendment lawyer or, or if the first amendment is your thing, then it's, you know, perfectly reasonable or, or they see it as perfectly reasonable not to talk about cancel culture. So there's a, uh, this raises a broader question and I'm, you and I have talked about this before, which is the question of whether the first amendment is both a blessing and a curse. I mean, it's a blessing because I, w- I wish we had a first amendment in the United Kingdom. It is obviously incredibly beneficial to the people of the United States in terms of defending their core freedom to express themselves. But do you think there's a danger that civil libertarians can become overly reliant on the first amendment and on its narrow definition of freedom of speech as, as a pushing back of the state to such an extent that they miss the newer trends, which can be the informal assaults on freedom of speech, the tyranny of conformism, that kind of pressure to say the right thing and do the right thing. So on balance, how do you think, see the First Amendment working and what do you think is needed to complement it in the fight for freedom of speech? I don't think that the retreat from condemning or trying to oppose cancel culture from civil libertarians is a function of the First Amendment. Right. 
I think um, what you're seeing are people who, for their own political or ideological reasons, are looking for an excuse not to criticize cancel culture. I think the First Amendment is a source of free speech values. The First Amendment, uh, you know, if you read important First Amendment cases, let's say Barnett versus West Virginia, which is the case that established the right of Jehovah's Witnesses not to salute the flag, you see the philosophy of free speech being very clearly and eloquently enunciated by the court. And, and you see that in a number of First Amendment cases when courts go about explaining why the First Amendment applies. So, you know, I think the First Amendment, as I say, it's a source of our free speech values. It's a source of free speech principles. It is not in any way opposed to them. Mm. And I think, you know, people at the ACLU who will say, well, we don't need to look at cancel culture because it's not a First Amendment issue. They just don't want to deal with cancel culture for their own political reasons. Because even if your primary concern is the legal system, even if your primary concern are First Amendment rights, you need to be concerned with what's happening in the culture. Because, um, you know, as I've said and written about several times, judges uh, don't operate in a vacuum. Judges come out of the culture. Judges respond to the culture. And if the cultural value of free speech is seriously diminished, that's going to be reflected in First Amendment jurisprudence. So on that question of culture, this takes me on to the kind of second section of the of the discussion, I guess. But I want to kick it off by talking to you about the Harper's Letter, the, the now famous or infamous Harper's Letter, where numerous people, including yourself, signed a letter in defense of freedom of speech and against the kind of tyranny of cancel culture, this tyranny of intolerance, which shouts people down, whether it's J.K. Rowling, who gets ceaseless death threats and rape threats simply for raising perfectly legitimate, uh, polite criticisms of aspects of transgenderism, or Katie Herzog in the US, who's been subjected to a lot of hate for what she has said about detransitioning, and numerous, numerous other people uh, who've been targeted in this way for various reasons. Um, so you signed the Harper's letter, and then you wrote a really good, really excellent piece for Spiked, saying that the response to the Harper's letter was proof of why it was necessary in the first place. So can you just explain to us a bit about why you thought it was important to put your name to that letter and and what you thought of the unhinged response that greeted its publication. Well, why wouldn't you put your name to that letter? You know, it, and I thought when I first read the letter, I thought, well, this is awfully judicious. You know, <laughs> I mean, if I had written that letter, it probably would have been a little stronger and, <laughs> and less diplomatic, but I would have been embarrassed not to sign the letter. Because it, it was simply saying that we need to be tolerant of a diverse range of opinion. I mean, put, put very simply. And it, maybe it was naivete on my part. What I didn't anticipate about the reaction was that it would take the form of accusations that the people who signed this letter were simply people who didn't want to be criticized. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's a kind of gaslighting, really. Because, yeah. you know, the letter was saying, don't overreact when you're criticized. Don't try to cancel the people who are criticizing you. That was the purpose, you know, put very simply, that was one point of the letter. And so the reaction is, oh, you just don't want to be criticized. And you felt like you had, <laughs> I felt like I just walked through the looking glass. And yeah. again, you know, when, when people are being completely irrational, as I think many of the people who responded to that letter were being, I just disengage. I, yeah. I don't know how to engage with people yeah. when they're not being rational. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the many things that make me really unhappy about the place that we're in now is that I find it really hard and increasingly rare to have conversations with people who disagree with me. Mm. And I'm not really interested in talking to people who agree with me. I don't learn anything from that. It's not any fun. I, you know, I think arguments can be uh, kind of invigorating. I think we can all learn from listening to people 
rational people who have opposing views. And I find that even with people in my extended family, there are so many topics that are now off limits. Yeah. And I find that very discouraging. And, and, and in my reading, I find myself drawn less and less to reading people who generally agree with me or to reading people sort of on the liberal left than, oh, I don't know, I, I read David French, for example, very regularly because David French, who you should really have on your podcast if you have it. Yeah. David is a, I think of him as deeply conservative, in, you know, in a classic sense. Politically, we, we have always disagreed on a broad range of issues. He is a, a conservative Christian. You know, I am a liberal, secular atheist. But, you know, he's very intelligent. And most of all, he, he operates in good faith. You know, he's intellectually honest. And he has perspectives and he has knowledge that I don't have and, mm. and views that I don't run into. And so I, you know, I read him regularly. I find myself reading a lot of the um, conservatives who, who maintained their opposition to Trump. And again, these are people that I disagree with politically in many, many ways and have for many years. But I get a lot out of reading them because they, they have a different perspective, but they're operating from a position of decency and intellectual <laughs> honesty. I connect with that point so clearly, and I've had exactly the same experience, particularly I talk a lot on campuses and so on. And I used to really enjoy the heated discussions I would have with students and professors after I'd given a speech or something. And you'd always learn something or you'd have to, you'd find yourself having to articulate yourself in a better way because people were really challenging you and putting you on the spot. But what I found over time, over the past five or 10 years is that it's very difficult to do that. And most of the time now I give a talk somewhere and then I just go because I know that the discussions afterwards will be either people being quite irrational and red in the face and shouting at you or people who you will start having a conversation with. And often very robotically, they will say, I am now removing myself from this space. And they kind of drift off into the distance, presumably into some safer environment. So that kind of discussion, which can be incredibly fruitful, good faith discussion with people who have profound disagreements, is kind of disappearing more and more, which touches on the point you've made many times, which is about the dangers of this kind of hyper-partisan political climate in which people essentially live in particular bunkers and don't engage with the other side, except if they're, unless they're throwing grenades at them. And that gives rise, I think, to a very impoverished intellectual climate. Well, and a, and a serious decline in critical thinking. Because hmm. if your ideas are not challenged by rational, intelligent people who, you know, who have different ideas and can engage with you um, persuasively and intelligently, if your ideas are not challenged, you're not going to learn very much. You're not going to, it's not just that you're not going to learn new perspectives or new ideas. It's that you're not going to develop your own thinking skills. You're going to become stupider, you know, yeah. to put it very simply. <laughs> you're, you're making yourself stupid because you are depriving yourself of the um, opportunity to learn how to think. Yeah. Because argument is a form of thinking. I mean, I, I used to say that I, I like to write because I don't really know what I'm thinking and, and until I start writing something. And when I'm writing something, I'm often on some level arguing with myself, or maybe I'm arguing with something that I've read somewhere. I'm arguing with, you know, I'm having an argument when mm -hmm. I write. And that, that's interesting, but it's even more interesting to have an argument with a real life person. <laughs> I agree. I Absolutely. Arguing with another real life person is always preferable to arguing with oneself. You can go slightly mad if you argue with yourself too much. I, I feel it would be remiss of well, me. The other problem with arguing with yourself is that you can never lose. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Always win. Before we move on to the state of America, I'm very keen to hear your views on that. I want to ask you about feminism because you've written uh, a lot about feminism. You were a feminist against censorship of pornography, even though you don't think pornography is a wonderful thing. And uh, you have written about the trends in feminism, the trends towards um, depicting all sorts of behavior as sexual harassment and the way in which that kind of can undercut 
interpersonal relations between men and women by imbuing them with this culture of suspicion and fear and so on. And I think the stuff you've written on that has been very influential, certainly being influential on my thinking. I want to ask you where you think feminism currently stands. Post Me Too, I guess, the Brett Kavanaugh case, um, a climate in which it seemed to me and also to people more important than me, for example, Margaret Atwood and a few others, it seemed that the Me Too movement became a bit of a, almost a Stalinist finger pointing culture where a denunciation in some cases was sufficient to end a person's reputation and potentially to end their career. How do you think things are going in feminism? Do you think it's getting worse? Do you think there's a, a that problem that you identified many years ago is intensifying? Or do you think there are some flashes of hope there as well? I think it's intensified. And I think that the what you call the Stalinism of the Me Too movement it was fueled by the mentality of cancel culture. I mean, it was really, in a way, it became a part of cancel culture. I, I feel very detached from contemporary feminism. When women, especially young women, for example, talk about being sexually assaulted, I don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're talking about some guy put his hand on my butt or some guy raped me. Or, you know, some guy groped me in really um, intrusive ways. Uh, some guy intimidated me. I don't know what they're talking about. And this notion that, and I've written about this a lot, and, I, and I'm not alone, certainly in my generation, in having written about this, this notion that women can and, and are and, and should expect to be traumatized you know, the most casual, unwanted touch is so disempowering. Yeah. Unless, unless you use that power, the power that you get from calling yourself a victim, to go after the people that you don't like. And, you know, we see the use of victimhood as a source of social and even political power in a lot of instances now. I mean, we see it in the free speech debates. You know, to some extent, this effort to shut down people who are expressing ideas that you don't like, claiming that their ideas are, you know, somehow the equivalent of active discrimination or acts of violence against people. I don't know if people really believe that. I mean, I suppose on some level they do, but really it's a power play. Yeah. You know, it's a way to shut up the people that you don't want to listen to and that you don't want to be heard. So I don't know what to say about contemporary feminism these days because it doesn't seem, from my perspective, to um, internalize any of the basic ideals of feminism. Mm. Mm. You know, Absolutely. I've always been a, a civil libertarian feminist. And I experience probably a lot more sex discrimination, uh, given my age. I, I'm 71, something which continually astonishes me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I imagine I experienced a lot more sex discrimination than a lot of these young women who feel so horribly victimized um, and who think they're going to be traumatized because some guy leered at them or, you know, some guy put his hand on their butt. Hmm. I mean, I, I went, I grew up at a time when, employment ads were divided into ads for male and female jobs. And employment ads were mostly for blue-collar or pink-collar jobs. And so the, the female jobs were for secretaries or gal Fridays, or as they were called then, and the male jobs were for um, taxi drivers or truck drivers. But, you know, there were clear delineations. I went to college, applied to college, and went to college in the years before Title IX. Mm -hmm. The Equal Education and Higher Education Law was passed. I, I applied to and went to law school in the years before that was passed. I mean, I, I when I was a young lawyer, I had I had judges call me honey. I had, you know, that was certainly a microaggression. I wasn't traumatized by it, but it was, <laughs> it was certainly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could go on and on. And, you know, it was annoying. 
in some in some ways it was kind of infuriating, but it, it certainly didn't come close to being traumatizing. Right. And and for a lot of us, you know, maybe it, it obstructed us in some ways, but not in, in larger ways. I mean, a lot of the women in my cohort went on to have very successful careers. Probably bigger obstacles were um, lack of childcare, traditional gender roles at home, all of that, which are really cultural as well as political problems. But... You know, when I think of the harassment that I and and members of my generation of women experienced, and I think about what people are, you know, moaning about today, you know, I have the reaction, I think, of a lot of women in my generation, like, you know, you don't want to say grow up, because that sounds too dismissive, and you certainly don't want to say man up. That would be the (laughs) worst thing you could possibly say. But you do wish they could have a little perspective. Yeah. And and when I look at um, the progress of women over the last 50 years, I do see a lot of progress, certainly not enough. And we certainly are going very far backwards on reproductive choice, you know, which is so essential to any notion of women's liberation. But in terms of um, how we look at female professionals and the ability of women to function in professional roles. Um, if we look at who's in college now, there have just been all these recent reports about the, the number of men relative to women who are dropping out of college or not going there to begin with. We can see a lot of progress. And it would be nice if we could appreciate that. Absolutely. And I think that's, what, what, that's one of the things that worries me most about what passes for progressive politics today is that it often seems to undercut some of the great gains of the past five or six decades in terms of the struggle to recognize that women have the same capacity as men to engage in public life, to engage in work life, and instead the transformation of women into these kind of wallflowers, these victims, these people who are wounded by words or wounded by sexual advances. And a a similar dynamic can be seen on the race question too. You know, all those wonderful, important struggles in the US and the UK against racism and in favor of equal citizenship, kind of being undercut by the notion that minority groups need protection from offensive words, need to be offered the scaffolding of therapy in order to defend them against the vagaries of uh, of contemporary life. I find those kinds of ideas very worrying. And particularly, you, you mentioned reproductive rights. It, it's always struck me that if we, as in people who believe in reproductive rights, if we're going to make the case for women having autonomy over their own bodies to being self-governing individuals who ought to have the right to determine what happens to themselves – then the starting point surely has to be a belief that women are capable of autonomy, that they are not fragile, that they are not weak, and instead should be self-governing in the They're same way. They're capable and strong and independent-minded exactly. yeah. and can fend for themselves in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that they're not the victims of abortionists. Yes. That, you know, that's, that's one line that some of the people in the anti-abortion movement take. Yeah, that these poor women, uh, you know, of course, we're not going to we're not going to try to put the women in jail. You know, we're going to go after the people who enable their abortions because they're just victims. Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spiked produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. That actually uh, takes me on nicely to uh, a point I wanted to ask you about in relation to, I guess, the left and the right. Because you you said earlier on that the right is embracing cancel culture in various ways too. It's also embracing, as you will know, the politics of victimhood, the politics of identity. You know, I often look at the right wing in the US and also in parts of Europe 
And it seems to be a mirror image of some of the worst trends on, on the woke left in terms of a white identitarianism, a sense of grievance, uh, a, a kind of ostentatious culture of victimhood. All those trends are as pronounced, I think, in sections of the right as they are on the left. But I wanted to ask you in relation to the US, which is obviously where you are. This is a place you know far better than I do. And in relation to a point you raised earlier about cultural power and political power. See, my temptation when I look at the US, and you will no doubt correct me on this, my temptation when I look at the US is to think it's similar to the UK in the sense that the right is in power, but they're not really in control. And what I mean by that is that they've been elected. In the UK, they were elected for the very express purpose of making sure that Brexit happened. In the US with Trump, they were elected for, well, Trump was elected for all sorts of reasons that are often quite complicated, but they were, Trump was in power for four years. But what has always struck me about the Trump era, and you've written uh, fantastically for Spite on the Trump era, it often struck me that it was, it was such a strange time because on the one hand, you had Trump in power being Trump doing crazy things, deeply worrying things, authoritarian things, anti-democratic things. But on the other hand, he didn't hold at bay the excesses of so-called progressive politics. He didn't hold at bay the excesses of woke culture in the way that I think probably some voters hoped that he would. But instead, that side of the cultural power got worse and worse and worse. So how do you see the relationship between the right when it takes political power and it's sometimes its inability to control the excesses of the cultural power of the progressive side in politics. Oh, I don't know how people who hold political power can control cultural forces unless they take control of, and, and people on the right are trying to do this, unless they find ways of taking control, for example, of social media. Mm unless they find ways of taking control of um, Netflix or Amazon or, you know, some of the big Hollywood production companies, you know, unless, or um, colleges and universities, unless they find ways of taking effective legal control of the sources of cultural power or the, the platforms that allow for the dissemination of cultural ideas. I don't know how they could control it. And, and I think you'll see them trying to control that. I mean, I think um, I expect that in the next midterm election in a year and a half that Trumpist Republicans will take over Congress. I think in 24, they will take over the presidency. And I think then you may see real efforts to clamp down on colleges and universities Uh, maybe through cutting off funding. I think you're going to see real efforts. And some of these will be joined in by people on the left to clamp down on um, big tech, on social media, because both the left and right have their arguments with what's going on in social media. You certainly see, and you see it now, you see efforts from people in power on the right to restrict the protest rights of people on the left. I mean, you saw this very clearly in Florida where the Republican governor and the Republican legislature passed, um, I think they called it an anti-riot bill, but it was really an anti-demonstration bill, um, which I think has been challenged effectively in federal court, though it's going to be appealed. So they can do that. They can clamp down on protests. They can um, use police power in very discriminatory ways against protests on the left, more so than against protests on the right. But taking over, diminishing, defanging cultural power is a more complicated endeavor, especially when they represent a minority. Yeah. And the reason that the U.S. democracy is now so much under threat is that Republicans are essentially, Trumpist Republicans especially, are essentially a minority party that is acquiring majority power. And it is tampering with the structures of democracy, with voting and vote counting, and also with gerrymandering in a way that will ensure the consolidation of their minority power and make it very hard to dislodge them. I mean, look at Texas 
where you have this horrible anti-abortion bill, which really legalizes a kind of vigilanteism. It's quite extraordinary. And at the same time, they passed this, what I think is fairly called a voter suppression law that attacks voting methods that are used mostly in democratic areas and that allows for poll watching at the polls that, you know, is another kind of vigilanteism that allows for private citizens to watch over the way you're voting so that their abortion bill is not necessarily all that popular. I mean, I don't really know what the polls say in in Texas, but, you know, you're going to see a fair amount of opposition to it. And if, you know, if we have another Republican president in two years and a Republican Congress, you'll see a lot of popular opposition to some of the policies they pass. But if they've taken control of the voting structures, there won't be any way to dislodge them. Yeah. And that is essentially the danger that we face. In the UK, it's similar and also different. So it's similar in the sense that the Conservative Party, which is our right-wing party currently in power under Boris Johnson, of course, are instinctively anti-protest. So they're currently pushing through a bill that would make it very difficult to hold and a noisy or disruptive protest. And you could face jail time if your protest is too loud or too noisy. And of course, the whole point of protest very often is to be disruptive. So there's a real problem there with this assault on the right to protest. But at the same time, we have this extraordinary situation where what you're describing in relation to the Trumpist Republicans, which is this clampdown on fundamental democratic mechanisms and democratic rights, in the UK, that process has largely come from the supposedly left wing of politics, particularly in the Brexit era, the attempt to override the vote for Brexit, the attempt to install a second referendum, which would have been utterly unprecedented uh, you know, to to have a, a an election result and not push it through, but instead to have another referendum uh, in its place, which would have been uh, it would have been catastrophic. So, it's similar in the sense that we have a ruling right wing party that just doesn't like protest. Right, it's instinctively hostile to protest. But but some of the anti democratic trends tend to be coming more from the progressive side and the left wing side. But what I wanted to ask you in relation to the US and particularly the post Trump era. And I, I know that you were, let's say, not a fan of Trump and you wrote, um, some very, very good critical. He's, he's one of the few human beings I've ever seen who has not a single redeeming quality. <laughs> and I can't think of a single redeeming quality. And there aren't many people I would no. say that. <laughs> and, uh, that came through brilliantly in the stuff that you wrote for Spite and other outlets too. And, um, I think on and many of those pieces, you really hit the nail on the head. But at the same time, the thing I think about people like you, not just you, but others too, obviously not lining up behind Trump, seeing Trump as someone with no redeeming qualities and and very destructive towards democracy and so on, but also people like you being very sceptical of what's called progressive and I would wager probably quite skeptical of some of the stuff that's happening in the democratic party in terms of their embrace of some of this problematic politics so do you feel hopeless or do you think there's a way in which a new kind of politics could break through or does the challenge to cancel culture and the kind of pushback from sensible people give you a sense of optimism how do you stand in relation to politics in the round i feel homeless (laughs) I also feel hopeless, not because of what's happening on the left, because I think that ultimately the left's power is going to be limited. I feel hopeless because of what I just described about what I think is going to be a successful attack on democracy from the right. If that doesn't happen, if my pessimism is exaggerated, uh, if I'm wrong, and I certainly hope that I am, and you know, there'll be some opportunity for democratic voters to make their voices heard in effective ways to elect people that we don't end up with this minority autocracy regime. And if we end up with what I think of as a very flawed and maybe even hapless democratic regime, which I think we have in part right now, that doesn't make me feel hopeless because I am neither a purist nor a nihilist. And um, I can live with political leaders 
who are normally bad, if you know what I mean. You know, I, yeah. I, I can live with thinking they're wrong on a whole range of issues. I can live with thinking they're not as smart as they think they're, they are. <laughs> you know, I can live with thinking that they don't, you know, they're bad civil libertarians. As long as they operate within a set of democratic norms. Yeah. And as long as they operate within the, the normal range of badness, <laughs> you know, within the normal range, they, they commit a normal range of mistakes <laughs> yeah. for good or bad reasons. I mean, I, so I say I, I'm not a purist yeah. and I'm certainly not a perfectionist when it comes to the way I think about politics. And I am really not a nihilist. And I think that one of the problems with political purity is that inevitably it leads you to nihilism mm -hmm. because politics is never pure. Political leaders are never purely what you want them to be. And if you're going to take the position that, uh, you know, this all or nothing position that purists take, you're going to end up on the nothing end of that equation and you're going to end up a nihilist. And I think nihilism is not just very dangerous, but an abdication of your responsibility as a citizen and a human being. Okay, I have one more question for you. Even though what you've just said w would have been a very good note to end this discussion on, I still think I need to ask you one more thing, which is about America post-COVID, although you're not quite post-COVID yet, and I guess none of us are and won't be for quite a while. Things are not going too badly in the UK at the moment. We're managing it fairly well, but I guess this is going to be a virus that is going to join the human family of viruses and we have to learn to live with it. But what impact do you think this hand grenade of COVID-19 has had on all the kinds of things you've just been talking about in terms of what it tells us about the Trumpist right, what it tells us about the democratic left, what it might tell us about the future of the US and the future of civil liberties? Do you think it's, it's going to have a transformative accelerating impact on some of the trends we've been talking about? Or do you think it might have the opposite effect and make people stand still, take stock, rethink and do things differently? I think it's having a very, very destructive effect on the body politic. Uh, it's increasing violence. I mean, people don't react well to stress, mm -hmm. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> it's increasing a kind of episodic violence that we've never seen before. You know, we see instances of adults assaulting children in schools over mask debates. We see school board meetings becoming violent. We see, you know, we had a case of a, you know, principals receiving death threats and attempted assaults because they want kids to wear masks. I mean, we see we see this, uh, and, I, and I wrote about this in Spike recently, this, this very debased notion of freedom, mm -hmm. that freedom means not having to wear a mask in a private commercial establishment, even if the business owner wants you to. And somehow that, that having to wear a mask when you go to a grocery store is just a, a primary and an intolerable assault on your individual freedom. And as I think I said in Spike, you know, it's like people don't know the difference between what you might consider very trivial and, and very temporary violations of your individual freedom. They don't know the difference between that and existential threats to freedom. Yeah. You know, uh, the right not to speak. Yeah. You know, and, and, and some, of, some of the policies that were enacted, certainly last year, and more by Democratic leaders, some of the lockdowns were extreme and... And I think crazy. I mean, telling people that they couldn't travel more than X miles from their homes, that was insane. I mean, that was, that was just insane and completely unnecessary. You can argue about whether it was necessary to lock down or limit some businesses for a period of time. You know, we, reasonable people are going to differ about that. But I don't think you can, I don't think a reasonable person would say that we should impose the kind of restrictions on people's movements that they imposed, for example, in France, as mm -hmm. I recall, mm -hmm. where you couldn't travel more than, I don't know, you couldn't leave your house for more than a certain amount of time mm -hmm. during the day. You couldn't travel further distance. That was just crazy. And, and that, helped, that helped make people crazy. And that helped, I think, gin up all the opposition to what 
what I think are some reasonable restrictions that we ask of people. You know, wear a mask if you're in a place where COVID is raging. You don't have to wear it outside, but if you're in a crowded indoor space, please put on a mask. I mean, that's not really not too much about to ask of people. Get a vaccine. Mm. And, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about vaccine opposition and the frustration with some of these people who will not get vaccines simply because people in my tribe don't get vaccines or because they believe these crazy conspiracy theories. And as I've said to you before, they are essentially locking down hospitals because the hospitals are so overwhelmed. But I don't blame the vaccine refuseniks as much as I blame their political leaders who are either encouraging or tolerating these bizarre conspiracy theories about vaccines, who are promoting notions that even being asked to get a vaccine is somehow a terrible assault on your freedom, um, who are accusing people who go door to door offering you vaccines of being Nazis or brown shirts. That rhetoric is coming from political leaders, from the Trumpist political leaders. And I blame them. I, I put primary blame on them for the place where we are right now, because the people who are dying are mostly unvaccinated people. COVID is raging in um, Republican states, in red states. I don't think it's the fault of the people who are in some, pla- in some ways really quite ignorant about COVID or about medicine in general. Um, who are susceptible to a lot of disinformation. I think it's the fault of the demagogues in and out of office who are lying to them, encouraging them, who are exploiting this situation for political, for their own political ends. And I think at the end of the day, there are questions, there's a basic question that you have to ask about these Trumpist Republicans, which is, what do you care about? What do you really care about? Because it's clear that they don't care about democracy if you look at what they're trying to do to the ability to vote and have your vote counted. They don't care about violence after elections when you look at, you know, their dismissal of what was obviously a violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th in an attempt to stop a vote count and the certification of of Biden's win. And most of all, and this is what's most shocking, They don't care about the life and long-term health of their own constituents. So what do they care about? They care about getting elected. People like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, um, and others, they want to be president. They, They care about how they're going to do in the presidential primary. You know, we expect politicians to care about the next election. We expect them to vote often in their political interests. But at least in the past, I, I think we've expected them to have a bottom line. You know, I, I think it's fair to expect a politician to care about the fatality rate among his supporters, uh, to care about contributing to completely avoidable deaths. And it's clear that they don't care about that. And I, I can't think of anything more morally bankrupt. Wendy Kamina, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Brendan. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.